Good afternoon again. We come to uh, the, the end of our study in the Gospel of Mark this week. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 16, verses uh, 1 to 8. And I wanted to just take a little bit of a, a moment uh, to explain why I'm not going further. As you open your Bibles, you might notice that there are uh, a few more verses. Um, and I need to do a little bit of explanation for you uh, to, to explain. So there is in your Bible, if you, have a, if you have a Bible in front of you, most likely a little notation that says something to the effect of, my ESV has it, says something to the effect of, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. Mark 16, 9 to 20. And that might cause you a little bit of consternation. I don't want it to. Uh, I hope it will not. Uh, there are, uh, amongst broad stretch of evangelical, Bible-believing scholars, do not think that this, these last few verses, verses 9 uh, to 19, are, or 9 to 20, are original to the, to the text. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we have thousands of manuscripts that come from all periods of time, from the very earliest, first century, all the way up uh, through the Middle Ages. Uh, we have differing manuscripts. And for the most part, they agree. They agree on 90 plus percent of everything that we find. That, that's an amazing thing, that we have these manuscripts spanning thousands of years that generally almost all agree. So that I just want us to, to be clear on that. There are a few things, small details, often little things, um, little um, things that were just left out, like and or the, um, occasionally, there'll be a word difference that is, we can understand why maybe a translator transposed it differently. There's all, all sorts of little differences that don't cut at the vitals of our religion. And I think actually none of the difference is in our uh, translations uh, in the manuscript evidence do. So I say that all that up front because this is the largest section uh, that we have in, in our Bibles that, that scholars generally think does not go back to the apostolic era, but was a later addition. Now, why do, I, why do, why do they think that? I, I'm gonna, so this is why I'm not preaching on it. I'll, I'll say at the, at the outset, most of what we find in the end verses can be found in the other Gospels. Uh, so that's an important thing. So next week, instead of preaching on the very end of Mark, I'll be preaching on uh, the end of Matthew in chapter 28, the Great Commission. Uh, so we'll be looking at that. Um, but why are some of the, what are some of the reasons? I uh, just want to highlight some of the reasons why scholars do not think that the ending on Mark is original. Uh, first of all, it, the language is very different from the, less, the rest of Mark. It uses different um, uh, uh, words, words that aren't used in the Gospel of Mark, uh, different construction of sentences. So that's, that's one of the reasons. I don't think that's a, a sufficient reason necessarily to say it's, it's not of Mark, but, I, but it at least gives us a pause, right? The second one is, you'll notice at the beginning of our text this morning, or this afternoon, it says, it describes the women who are present, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. So those are, those are present. But then at the beginning of the next section, it goes on and it says, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. It's a little odd, if it was part of the original, that he would add in that section about who she is and not put it at the beginning, right? So that's another little minor detail. 
Um, again, not necessarily reason to say it's not original. Um, another thing is the gospel writer Mark, as we've looked at throughout the, 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 our study in the gospel of Mark, was a very pithy writer. He wrote, uh, he, he began his gospel suddenly. We don't get the birth narrative in the gospel of Mark. Um, you'll notice he jumps right into the baptism by John the Baptist. Um, and then at the end, there seems to be an abruptness. So there's an abrupt beginning, and then there's an abrupt end here in verse 8, where it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, from, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's how the gospel ends, and I want to look at that in a little bit to say, why do you think the gospel would end on such an abrupt line? And we're going to look at that uh, in the end. But it's a, it seems that it would make sense that people, as they were, as they were uh, getting the gospel accounts, uh, somebody took the other gospel accounts and says, well, Mark needs to be filled out. It needs an addendum. We need a little more information. We know in the other gospel accounts that, that Jesus appeared to, to different people. He even, uh, uh, you know, he met them by the Sea of Galilee, we see in the Gospel of John. So, so it seems to be that maybe as they were handing out the gospel of Mark, they said, oh, and by the way, this, this is the gospel, but there's other things that happen. Here's a little addendum at the end. Um, so taking some of the information from uh, the other gospel accounts. But again, that may not be the, the, the best reason. Again, these are kind of adding up reasons why this might not be original. Uh, there's also a few things that are not found anywhere else in Scripture that seem a little off from the rest of the gospel accounts. There's talk of snake handling, and there's talk about drinking poison without being affected. Um, sort of miracles. Not that that can't happen in God's paradigm. There could be miracles that happen, but it doesn't seem to comport with the rest of the gospel accounts. But the largest reason is because the earliest and best witnesses do not include this longer reading. Our earliest and best evidence does not include this reading. Now, the question then is, so why is it even printed for you here, right? That's the, the follow-up to that. Why is it printed for you? Well, one of the reasons is because in the English language, uh, the standard translation for generations was written uh, back um, hundreds of years ago, but it was, it was translated by, uh, under the authority of King James. So you have your King James Version, and uh, the King James Version took the strain of... of, of uh, manuscripts that were moat the most. So they came from all centuries, from the earliest centuries all the way up to the latest centuries, and said, this is the majority text reading. The mo- it has the most witness, but many of those witnesses come very late. 1300s, 1400s, 1200s. They come through this transmission uh, a line, and they, they transmit from one to another, and so they keep transmitting over and over again this last portion. So in other words, they weight this majority text above the early texts. It's a decision they made. And, you know, they decided that that was the best reading of the text. Now, I say all of this, I, I want to say all of this, um, that the, the, again, the vast majority of texts agree on almost everything in Scripture, and I don't think this has to 
in any way make us nervous about, well, is this true or is this true? Um, but it is to say that there is this one big chunk of Scripture that I'm saying, big chunk of the Bible that I'm saying isn't likely, very likely isn't original. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Because I don't think it's original, I'm not going to preach on it. If you have questions and you want to follow up with me and you want to discuss this to a further extent, I'm more than happy to do that. I've given you a very rough explanation, um, but I felt like it was necessary before we jump into the text to explain why I think the ending of Mark, and it's not me, by the way, this is the broad agreement of of Bible-believing evangelical scholars uh, in uh, the, the world, really. So just... Just highlighting this. All right, so with that, let's read God's Word. (laughs) Let's get to the text. We're going to read about the resurrection. This is Easter Sunday. Here is the story of the resurrection from the writer from the Gospel of Mark. Hear God's Word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. We seek Jesus of Nazareth. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that were told to these women at the very moment of uh, the very day of your resurrection. What, What a glorious thing to be witnesses to that. And Lord, we pray that you would help encourage our hearts through their witness and through Mark's We thank you for the resurrected Lord, which means new life for us. Help me as your servant to preach faithfully your word. Forgive my sins and use me despite me for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are occasional experiences in our life uh, that leave us speechless. Have you ever had an experience where you just... You were just speechless. You didn't have any words to describe what you were seeing. Maybe it was something, things that were beyond your comprehension, that you, uh, events that you had been a part of, things that you had observed in the natural world where you sat back and you said, I have no words. I'm in utter disbelief. I, I can't describe what I'm seeing. I am shaken to my very core. And some of these things can be good things, Right? Some of these things can be bad things. Some of these things can be things that are unexplainable or awe-inspiring. For me, I think of the birth of my children. Uh, The birth of my children was one of those events I could not 
wrap my mind around. I was so overwhelmed with wonder and awe. Maybe some grand or expansive view, like you're at the Grand Canyon, you're on the rim of the Grand Canyon, and you're looking out across this vast space, and you have no words to describe the wonder of it, right? Maybe you've been in an experience like that or to a place like that. Starry night can do this. Some bad things too, though, if you've ever experienced a perilous situation that you barely escaped from. I won't... Sorry, Mom, I won't tell any stories of my own. But they happen occasionally, right? And you come out of it and you're shaken. Your knees are literally shaken. And you wonder that you survived. And you think about how God provided for you in that moment. You've, you've had experiences like this. Maybe an act of valor that you witnessed. Mark in his gospel is recounting the grandest of such events in all of human history. The eyewitness account of the resurrection and the empty tomb was the greatest event. The greatest event in all of human history that was witnessed. The the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mark began his gospel very abruptly, as I mentioned before, and he ends his gospel very abruptly. He doesn't include, as I mentioned, Jesus' birth narrative. He jumps directly into the story of his ministry, and he opens with these words, if you remember from the beginning of our study many moons ago. He said these words, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So you knew at that moment when, when Mark jumps into the story that he has something awesome and amazing and wondrous to, to talk about. He's talking about Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Messiah, and it's good news. And this is what he wants us to leave with today, this sense of wonder and awe. He leaves us with that trembling. We see in these fear-filled women who were the witnesses, the first witnesses to the empty tomb. And Mark is making this point. This account of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, when rightly comprehended, ought to leave you in wonder, in awe, in trembling, in fear, in speechlessness. The other gospel writers will fill out the post-resurrection account, but for Mark, he wants us to experience the same shock that these women experienced when the name of the Lord met them that day in the empty tomb. And, And I think as we come to a text that is so familiar it can be difficult for us, it can be hard for us to recapture a sense of wonder, right? He is risen. He is risen indeed. We say it every Easter. We come to this text, or it's a text in other gospel accounts, or to ones that talk about the resurrection. Every year, if you've been in the church, say, for 40, 30, 40 years, you've heard a lot of sermons, a lot of discussion on these texts, and you can somewhat become familiar and comfortable with it. And so I think today, our goal this afternoon is to be reminded of the wonder and awe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rose again from the dead. But maybe for some of you here this afternoon, for whom this story is not so familiar, I want you also to be in wonder and hear the good news. This is good news that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Because of that, we have hope of eternal life, new life. 
So, Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. The first thing I want to think about is that Jesus was dead and buried. I think it's the first thing that we, we notice here in our text. We are uh, introduced to three women who uh, have been in the gospel accounts. Uh, we are introduced to Mary Magdalene. Uh, who is Mary Magdalene? Well, she was the most, I think, outside of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is the most commonly referenced woman in the New Testament. She is referenced more often than some of many of the disciples. She's a significant disciple of the Lord Jesus herself. Uh, she was probably from a wealthy family in the area of Magdala. Uh, what's significant about her is that she was demon-possessed, as noted here later in the, in the addendum, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark, but is also noted in the other Gospels, that she was freed, delivered from demon possession by seven demons or seven spirits. So that's what we know about Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James. Uh, this, there's different James, so you get, keeping everything straight is a little challenging. And this Mary we don't know nearly as much about. If you know a lot about Mary Magdalene, we know almost nothing about this Mary, uh, the mother of James. Mary, the mother of James. James was called James the Lesser. <laughs> or James the Less, uh, because the other James, James uh, and John, they're brothers, they're the, the, the sons of Zebedee, they are um, sort of more prominent in the gospel. Uh, but James, one of the disciples called James the Less, Mary was probably the mother of this James. It's possible that Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, was her sister. Uh, there's some indication that, that James was related in some way to Jesus, maybe a cousin, called a brother at one point, um, but there's some confusion. There's different Jameses and there's different Marys, and so trying to work these things are not exactly clear. We don't know that much about her, but there she was. She was one of the women to, be, to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. The final one is Salome the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the, those two brothers that I mentioned, James and John, John being the beloved disciple. Um, Salome was the one who went to Jesus at one point and asked if her sons could sit on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. She was a follower of Jesus. She loved Jesus and she was grateful. These women, uh, we read in the end of the, uh, the, the, the 15th chapter of Mark, it says when Jesus was in Galilee. They followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So what we learn about these women is that they were women who ministered to the Lord Jesus. They took care of him. They were disciples of his. They loved and followed Jesus. What's most striking in the gospel account is where we see them. At the end here, first we see them watching Jesus crucified. They watch from a distance, but there they are. They're watching their Lord, this one who had delivered them from demon possession, taken their sons under his wings. Here he was on a cross being crucified, suffering and dying, and they were witnesses to that. They were there, present. But not just that, not just there. 
We're told afterward that Joseph of Arimathea went to the, to the rulers and asked for the body. They verified that Jesus was, in fact, dead. They took him down from the cross, gave the body to Joseph of Arimathea. He had a, a tomb, and they took the body to the tomb, and they t- had a linen shroud, and they wrapped him in linen, and they put him into the tomb, and then they, of course, rolled that large stone in front of the tomb. But who was there witnessing all this? These women. They watched as he was crucified. They watched as their Lord was buried. And now, a few days later, after the Sabbath, they had prepared spices and ointment to put onto the body. They couldn't do it on the Sabbath, but they wanted to do it. And the reason they wanted to put these spices and ointment on the body of Jesus was because why? Because a body in the grave stinks. It was a custom, a Jewish custom. They would try to cover up the stench. And so they go not only after he, well, he is crucified, do they watch? Not only do they go and watch him buried and put in the tomb and the stone being rolled in front, but they go there even afterward and say, we need to deal with this dead body. They loved the Lord Jesus. But Jesus was dead. They had no other thoughts in their mind. Jesus, who had cast out demons from Mary Magdalene. Jesus, who had taken James and John, the sons of Salome, under his wing and taught them to love them. Jesus, who took this other James under his wing, was dead. He was wrapped in a linen shroud. He was buried. He was laid behind a stone too large for any one person to move. He was gone. Kids, you had an opportunity to try to lift a large stone. How'd that go today? Seamus, you were able to get it up a little. I noticed that. Just a little bit, you were able to get that up. Imagine a stone so large that it covered the entrance to a tomb. Try to push against it. How'd that go? Not too well. He was dead. He was gone. The women came that morning to the tomb as soon as they could, as soon as the Sabbath was over, when the sun was up. And what did they have in their mind? There's rotting flesh in there. I need to go cover up that that stench. And they were trying to figure out, how are we going to get into the tomb? There's this giant stone in the way. What are we going to do? How are we going to get there? They were thinking about how in the world were they going to move into the realm of the dead, so to speak, beyond which no life could exist in this tomb, a place for the dead, a place for stench. I I do have one true confession to make, Mom. So about, I don't know when it was, sometime when you guys were away, in the last year. We, <laughs> true confession, so Aaron is shaking her head. So we, we had, um, they have a refrigerator downstairs. It's usually running all the time, usually. And we had some meat in there, a roast, big pork shoulder, big old pork shoulder. And at some point, somehow, there was something else in the fridge, but the door had gotten left open. And at some point, the refrigerator, being smart these days, said, turn off, turn off, or something, and it just shut down. 
but we didn't know. And after a few days, we went downstairs and we're like, what stinks so bad? <laughs> Sorry, Bob. So I go over to the fridge and I pull the freezer drawer. There's no coolness at all. And this overwhelming stench of rotting flesh comes out. Now, what do you do with something that is like that? You go and you put it in the garbage outside, out of the way. And then we had to, of course, disinfect the fridge, tear everything out, clean it all up, get all special equipment to like de-stinkify the fridge so that you would never know. (laughs) So we took that rotting flesh of a pork roast and we brought it outside and we live in Bloomfield. And for those of you who live in Bloomfield, you know, if you put rotting flesh outside, what comes? Bears. That's right. So, so one time, one day the bear came and he just dragged the rotting flesh and it dragged it down into the, uh, into the driveway. It must've gotten scared off. So I went out and I grabbed it again, double bagged it, triple bagged it, put it back in the garbage can, put a rock on the garbage can. What do you think happened? The bears, they, they smell this from miles away. Why? Because it's rotting flesh. And they came and they emptied the garbage, dragged the garbage back, took it, ripped it open and feasted on that thing in our backyard for about a good hour or so. Just feasted with his little, with her little cubs. Anyway, rotting flesh stinks. That's why they went to take those spices and put them on the body because They were trying to mask death. And don't we do that too? Try to mask death. When we talk about somebody dying, we talk about them passing on. Don't use the language of death. We often talk about funerals as celebrations of life. We don't want to think about them in the grave. We want to think about how they lived. And this is completely understandable. It is normal. It's natural for us to want to cover over death, to cover it up and to not face it. It's natural for us to loathe death, to hate it. And it's natural for us to want to celebrate life and to think about living even in the face of death because death itself is not natural. It is not the way it was meant to be. It's not some grand circle of life. It's not just part of a biological fate. It's part of the curse. It's part of the fall. It's, it's because of our own sin that death reigns in this world. And it's to be hated and grieved over and fought against. Friends, Jesus was dead and buried. He was placed into a tomb. He was wrapped in linen. And he was left to rot. But these women, they didn't abandon Jesus even in his death. What a precious thing. They went to him. True, they didn't grasp the power of Christ or that he would rise again. They didn't comprehend what he meant about rising again. Their, their faith in that sense faltered in that they, were, they went there to prepare his body to go from, from life to death, to go from flesh and blood to dust to the earth. That was what they were preparing the body for. They didn't quite grasp the fullness of what Jesus taught. Nevertheless, these women, they went and they faced his death. 
They willingly identified themselves with a blasphemer, at least according to those who crucified him. They were the first ones to go. They even went when many of the disciples were huddled in a room somewhere or had abandoned him at the cross. These women were there at the cross, at the burial, and now on the third day at the tomb, they were there to finish the task of facing the death of their Lord. Let me ask you guys a question. Have you faced death? You see, I don't think we can truly marvel at the resurrection of Jesus Christ until we come to see death for what it is. It is, as Paul calls, the last enemy. And really, there's not one of us here today, apart from the second coming of our Lord, who will not face our mortality, will not face our greatest enemy. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, as we read earlier, notes that death entered the world through Adam, and in Adam, all die. And this is an awful detestable thing. It's, it's not natural. It's not how it is supposed to be. And, and for all who've stood by the grave of a loved one, understand the power and horror of death. If you've stood by a grave, you understand the finality of it. The loneliness of it. The emptiness of it. When you sit there and you see the body being lowered into the grave, you understand it. It's not the way that it was meant to be. And it's on account of our sin. It's on account of my sin. It's on account of your sin. Death is the result of our rebellion against God Most High. So Paul calls it the last enemy to be destroyed. But here were these women looking at that great enemy face to face, wondering how Jesus, the Messiah, could be crushed by it. They're thinking, as they looked at him on the cross, they had to wonder, how is this happening? How is he being crushed by death? Of course, this was the plan from the beginning. And it's no wonder that the women play these intimate roles in the redemptive story. If you go all the way back to Genesis Chapter 1, the Lord told the serpent that this seed, his seed, would crush the heel of the seed of the woman. You remember that? Of course, there was another corollary to that, but that was part of it. He told the woman, he said, or he told the serpent, he said, your seed is going to crush the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman, not Eve's direct seed, but the seed that was born of the Virgin Mary, one of Eve's daughters, so to speak, who this seed of the woman, Mary, the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus himself, the seed suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried, who descended into hell. In other words, he took upon himself the wrath and curse of God for our sin, who on this third day Before these women even got there, he conquered the grave. He conquered death. He crushed 
the seed of the serpent's head. The last great enemy. Friends, we all face death, but Christ has conquered it once for all. For those who put their trust in him. And this is what causes us to tremble as we consider the empty tomb. It is the wondrous love of Christ. The women contemplating how they might move the stone away are flabbergasted as they arrive. They have their heads down. They look up. They're thinking about, oh, how are we going to move the stone? They look up and they see that the stone has already been moved. The stone has rolled away. And they, you, you have to be thinking what was going through their minds. They must have been wondering, did, had Joseph of Arimathea thought ahead for us? I mean, he was a very thoughtful man. Clearly, he was thoughtful. He was the one who took the, the, the time to care for the body of our Lord Jesus. Maybe he knew we were coming back here to anoint the body, to prepare it for burial. And so he had those stones away so that when we got here, you wonder what was going through their minds. So they entered the tomb, wondering these things. And there before them, sitting where Jesus' body had been laid, stood a man dressed in a white robe. And it says, the text says that they were alarmed. Of course, this is the way with every angelic visit, isn't it? In, in, all, in all of scripture, whenever an angel comes, their first line is what? Do not be afraid. It's okay. And uh, why was this angel so alarming? Well, here he is. He is a messenger of heaven before them. He is one who is unsullied by the world, one who is radiant and powerful. I want to read a little bit from the Gospel of Matthew that describes uh, the events prior to the arrival of the woman and the, 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 this heavenly messenger. In Matthew 28, it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guard trembled and became like dead men. So when the women entered the tomb, of course they were afraid. But of course, the angel has good news. Almost always, the angel comes and he has good news. He says, don't be afraid. Don't, don't, don't be so alarmed. I have a revelation unlike any other. And he says, do not be alarmed. Do you seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified? He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going to go before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Fear gripped these women, as it would any of us, of course. Now, there was a certain fear of the grave that they faced as they entered the tomb anyway. There was the terror and the finality of death as they watched Jesus crucified. And, and, and as I imagine that as they stood and they watched the Lord being crucified, that they thought that there is nothing that was more powerful than death itself, Right? the greatest power in all the world. And as they watched his body being wrapped and laid in the tomb, they must have wondered the same thing. But they overcame this fear. They faced the grave and they went to the tomb that morning despite their fear and grief. But here a different fear came over them. 
as they wondered at the news of this radiant heavenly messenger. It was the kind of fear that we have when we face something so much greater than ourselves. When, when we are struck, awestruck, it's hard to imagine the kind of awe and wonder that they experienced that day. I can only liken it to being on the precipice of something like the Grand Canyon, or as I imagine it, of walking in space. I've always wondered what it would be like to be somebody walking in space. But I imagine that if I were to walk in space, I would be overwhelmed with my finitude, with my littleness, with my frailty. Maybe, maybe there's other things that would cause this. Being in the midst of a hurricane, you know, you get that moment where you're just so in awe and wonder the power around you. That's as close as I can liken to the fear of these women, and I really don't think it compares. But here they are, they have this sudden moment where they're coming to the realization of who Jesus is. Here, indeed, was Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. There is an incomprehensibility to the resurrection. It's not something we can explain in any natural way. In fact, there is no explanation for the resurrection apart from the very power of God, the one who made all things. He's the only one that can bring life from death. And this is the wonder of the empty tomb. God in flesh conquered the grave. But the most wondrous, and this is where I want to close, the most wondrous and awe-producing aspect of the words of this angel are these. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now, that may seem kind of mundane. It's like, it's kind of information. Just, okay, Jesus is risen from the dead. That's the big thing, right? Jesus is risen. But, and then there's this kind of like, I don't know, oh, no, by the way, go tell everybody, and we'll meet you over here in Galilee. Right? It can kind of feel a little bit mundane, but I actually think this is the most wondrous aspect of this resurrection account. Wrapped up in these words is love and grace and forgiveness. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Why did he pull Peter out? Why did the angel pull Peter out and say, and Peter? Isn't he just one of the disciples? Why go tell the disciples and Peter? Well, the last time we see Peter, what is he doing? He's denying the Lord Jesus three times. And here, the angel of the Lord is saying, go tell Peter, Christ is coming, and he wants to meet with you. He wants to talk with you. It's full of mercy and love and grace. He says, go tell those men who abandoned him at the cross that he is coming to you. You see, Jesus is risen, not just to in some way abstractly conquer the grave, but he rose again from the dead for our salvation, to redeem us, to forgive us, to give us new life. 
He says to you, sinner, I'm coming to you. And I'm going to give you life through my resurrection. He is risen. He is risen indeed. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. The first Adam became a living being, but he was a man of dust. The second Adam became a life-giving spirit. He was from heaven, and in him, friends, we are born again, raised up, born from above. And we can sing with Paul those words that we read earlier, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the love of God for you. He is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray.